Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada and however you have found our podcast we're so glad you're here before we jump into today's message just a couple things want to let you know if you go to our website www.duncanchurch.com you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us we have an online connect card you can fill out maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. I wonder, um, so uh, big mistakes. We've all made some big mistakes. I actually shared for you probably about a month or two months ago about the time that I was tired and went to sleep when we were first married. Do you remember this? And I didn't, I turned the ringer off on the phone because my brother was going to call and Andrea was off work at 11 and I forgot to pick her up and it was horrible. Um, Did I ever share with you, I don't know if I did and I won't share it again, but you know, I'm going through some of my big mistakes. Um, Did I ever share with you the pirate story? Did I? I don't know. Did I? I know you know it. You're my daughter, but uh, did, did I not share that story about the pirate? I guess I got to share it now. I had some other big mistakes, but I, I'll share the pirate one because it's another big mistake I made. When I was first in ministry in Comox, Andrew and I, um, we'd been ministering in Comox for like about six months, and there was a conference going on in Parksville for pastors from Vancouver Island and the Lower Mainland. So we were pretty new to the pastoral ministry thing. And uh, our, our church was going to this conference, and so we, we went to it, and at the conference, there was four sections, North Island, South Island, and then the Fraser Valley and the Lower Mainland, were these four sections for the Pentecostal churches that they split everything into. And so they started off the evening by saying, why don't you get into your sections, and we want you to introduce your section to the rest of us. There's about 150, 200 people there. We want you to introduce your section to the rest of us by doing a skit or a a song or something special to introduce yourselves. Okay, so we break off into these different groups, and and we were, um, we lived in Comox, and they did the divide on the island from Nanaimo North, and then Ladysmith South was South Island, so there's South Island, North Island, and all these four areas. So we do our thing. We go back to our seats. We're we're ready for the evening, and the host says, well, before we see everybody's skit or song, whatever they've prepared, why don't you just introduce yourself to one another? So I thought, okay, perfect. So um, I turn around and we're introducing ourselves. Right behind me is my good friend Trevor, Trevor Kempner. Some of you may know who he is. He pastored in Ladysmith at the time. He was a youth pastor there. And, and besides, hey, Trev, and we, you know, we went to all four, year, four years of Bible school together. Beside him is his pastor. His pastor's name is Marvin Dinah. Now, now I see Marvin, and I'd never met him before, never seen him, never heard of him. And um, Trevor introduces me, oh, this is my pastor. Uh, this is Pastor Dinah. And I said, hi. I, I introduced, and, I, and I noticed that he has, um, some of you may know, remember Pastor Dinah. Um, he, he was wearing glasses that he had taken what looked like a pair of sunglasses and broken the lens out and put it behind his one glass side. And I thought, oh, he must be a pirate in his skit. So he, Trevor introduces me, and I say to him, I say, oh, yeah, I'm Peter. I said, oh, are you a pirate? <laughs> and he just kind of, you know, just smiled, and I 
And Trevor looks at me like, I'm like, what's the big deal? What's going on? So anyway, anyway, everyone does their song or their skit. And I noticed the South Island, Lady Smith South to Victoria, they do their skit. Um, there's no pirate in the skit. So it turns out that, that Pastor Dinah is missing an eye, I guess. And, um, and so he, where it's just a blacked out kind of lens. I put my foot in my mouth. Big mistake. I said to Trevor after the, I, I don't remember what the guy spoke about that night. I just remember being like, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I said that. And so I, after the evening's over, I turn around and I say to Trevor, I'm like, Trevor, I can't believe I did that. And he's like, I know. He's like, I, I was shocked that you said that. Like, this, this isn't Peter. And I said, I have to say something. He's like, oh, no, no, no. He's the nicest guy ever. Don't even worry about it. I said, no, I've got to say something. I feel horrible. So the next morning, we're returning after breakfast. We're going back towards the, uh, I'm by myself, and I see Pastor Dinah coming my way by himself. I thought, perfect time. We're in the hall together on the way to the conference room. I can just apologize. And I said, Pastor Dinah, I, uh, I wanted to apologize for what I said last night. And he says, oh, oh, oh. And I said, yeah, you know how I called you a pirate? Oh, you did? <laughs> Big mistake number two. He didn't even hear me. So he actually had no idea that I called him a pirate. And um, anyway, I had to then explain to him, yeah. And I had to tell him the whole thing and how I called him a pirate. And it was, he, was, he was very nice about it all. So uh, Phil and Ruth, I'm sure you remember Pastor Dine, a very nice man. He, I, I still am pastoring to this day, as you can tell. Um, but, you know, there's been a lot of big mistakes throughout history. Lots. <laughs> Lots of big mistakes. But there's been no bigger mistake than that of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, as the King of Kings. And if you were with us last week, you remember we saw these incredible blessings in Zechariah. We finished off chapter 9. We finished off all of 10. And there was these incredible blessings that would come through Jesus. The first half of the chapter 9, of course, Connor covered that, which was all about Alexander the Great, a prophecy about Alexander the Great that would come. And then in verse 9 of chapter 9, we get to Jesus the, the coming king of kings. And if you remember that, we, we saw this, this coming Christ, this Messiah, the first coming, and, and, and how all the gospels speak about this triumphant entry, they call it, this king that would ride in on a donkey, this incredible prophecy. But we talked last, last week about how there's kind of this gap between verses 9 and verses 10 because there's all these incredible blessings that are pronounced, but none of them came upon Israel at that time. Because none of the uh, gospel writers even included verse 10 in their prophecy about Jesus in his triumphant entry. Because scholars would agree that, that verse 9 is about Christ's first coming, but verse 10 and onward is about Christ's second coming, when he establishes his kingdom on this earth, his kingdom reign. Brings these blessings of peace and protection, provision, and the pulling together of the people, of the Jews. And, and we saw how Jesus is the goat. Do you remember this new term that you learned last week, some of you? You weren't familiar with it, but goat, greatest of all time, right? He was the greatest of all time. He is the greatest of all time. But all these blessings were future, but Christ's second coming, we saw there's a delay between verse 9 and 10. Why is there a delay? Ultimately, there was a delay to the blessings because Christ was rejected at his first coming. That's what happened. The Jews did not accept him as their Messiah, as the King of Kings. And this morning, as we look in, in Zechariah at chapter 11, we're going to see Zechariah play a little bit of dress up. He's actually going to dress up as a good shepherd. Of course, who do you think the good shepherd is that he's representing? Yes, you always know the answer, Jesus. So good job. He represents Jesus when he first dresses up as a good shepherd. But secondly, we're going to see him do some more dressing up. And he's going to dress up as the foolish 
shepherd in the last part of chapter 11, um, whom many commentators believe represents the Antichrist, Antichrist. So he represents Jesus, whom Israel rejected, the reason for the delay, and then we're going to see him represent the foolish shepherd, whom Israel will gladly accept. If you have a Bible, listen, there's Bibles in the seats all around you. If you need a Bible and you don't have one, like if you're in one of the front rows, reach behind you. There's Bibles underneath the seats behind you. Or put up your hand. We've got Bibles at the back, and someone will be sure to grab one for you. But you need a Bible to follow along. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 11. It's going to be much easier if you have a Bible. How do you find the book of Zechariah, by the way? Yeah, find Matthew, which is actually, I said two-thirds. It's actually more like about three-quarters of the way through the Bible. Um, Go to the Gospel of Matthew, and then go backwards. You'll hit Malachi, and then before Malachi is the book of Zechariah. So Zechariah chapter 11. Why don't we pray before we look this morning at the biggest mistake ever. Father, um, Lord, I ask that you would teach us. I thank you for your word. Lord, may you open our eyes and our hearts. Lord, we want to be people that accept you, that receive you, that welcome you in. Jesus, to be the king of our lives. Bless our time, I pray in your word today. I thank you, excuse me, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that is in your word, not my word, but your word. Teach us this morning, we ask in your name. Amen. So we're going through the book of Zechariah, of course, as a church. If you're maybe new or visiting, we we take books of the Bible the, the majority of the time And we just walk through them verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we're currently studying the book of Zechariah. We'll be done in a few weeks, but we find ourselves this morning in Zechariah chapter 11. And the first thing that we're going to see in Zechariah chapter 11 is the rejection of the good shepherd. That's the first thing we'll see this morning, the rejection of the good shepherd. And ultimately, we'll see the results really that come with it. Chapter 11, it starts with a poem in a lot of ways. It's really a poem, or some people would even call it a funeral dirge kind of thing, a funeral song perhaps. It's all about the coming judgment uh, that is coming on Israel because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. It's basically in poetic terms describing the consequences for rejecting Jesus at his first coming as the good shepherd. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, it begins this way. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Now Lebanon, of course, is north of Israel. And Lebanon would be the route that every conquering king would have to come through basically, to get through to Egypt or anywhere else that they were battling. Even if they didn't want to take on Israel in a fight, they still would pass through this certain area. There's actually a place in Lebanon, in Beirut, which is in Lebanon. Um, There's a river there known as the Dog River. And at the Dog River, there's something what's known as the calling card of the nations. I actually have a picture for you here of it. And on this, 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 there's now a road paved there, but this was the route that basically all the conquering kings would come through. They would carve their names in the rock, kind of like a bathroom stall. You know, it's like they would put their name on the stall. Peter was here, 1976, right, kind of thing. So, you know, like you'd you'd carve your name. They didn't carve it. They had someone else that did it for them. But there are literally dozens and dozens of conquering kings' names are inscribed into this rock as far back as 1276 B.C. That's how far back some of these go to. And even sometimes even to modern day, some people, some leaders have still had their inscriptions inscribed in that rock as kind of a, a triumph kind of thing that they do. So, so this is what God is saying. He's saying, I'm opening up the doors for the conqueror to come through. That's what he's saying. Open your doors, O Lebanon. That's where they would all pass. Because Israel would reject Jesus as their king and as their Messiah, God would open the doors of judgment. That's ultimately what's, what's going on here in this poem. You see, less than 40 years, less than 40 years after Jesus Christ was rejected, after he was crucified on the cross, 
Less than 40 years later, Rome, of course, you know this, they came, they sacked Jerusalem. And what did they do? They torched the temple. You know what it says here? The fire that the fire may devour your cedars. Isn't it interesting? The cedars of Lebanon, does that ring a bell for anybody? Yeah? That, that was, of course, the, the first temple. This is not the temple that would have been there at this point um, when Christ um, first came. Um, but the, the temple of Solomon, of course, was built with the cedars of Lebanon. And so the rabbis even of that day believed this verse to, repina- uh, to represent that very passage, that thing that was happening, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, that the fires may devour your cedar. That's kind of what's going on here. Then verse 2 goes on and says this, Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the, wa- the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Three times we hear this. Wail, 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 right? And really it's describing the horror of the devastation that would come at the hands of Rome to Israel, to Jerusalem. You know, when Rome conquered any nation or any area, they did nothing half-hearted. It's like, well, it would take 10 people probably to, to take care of this. You know how many they would send? We'll send 1,000 then. That's what they would do. They never, ever would do something that it was like, okay, we better go back and finish what we started. They would come in with the most magnificent, like massive amount of people and army to get the job done the first time. And that's what's going on here. They would destroy everything that was in their path, overwhelming with their army. And this really, these, these two verses here, verses 2 and 3, describe the extent to which Rome would conquer when they came and conquered Jerusalem. And we're talking everyone, everywhere. Do you notice that? That the shepherds, he says, wail, O shepherds. Even the shepherds and their flocks in the fields would, would feel the effects of Rome coming in. Destruction would come as far south even as the Jordan. Right? The thickets, the force of the Jordan, all of Israel, even the lions, it says, in their habitats would, would be affected by Rome's invasion. And so that's what verses 1 to 3 kind of sets out. It sets out this poem, basically um, introducing what is going to happen because of the rejection. So it's kind of how the, it starts off. But then what we see now in verses 4 to 14 of chapter 11 is a description. So it's kind of a description now of what verses 1 to 3 were all about. So it now describes the poem, basically why the destruction is going to take place. It may seem a little bit confusing at first. I don't know if you, you remember when we began the book of Zechariah. Do some of you remember this? When we did talk about our introduction, I mentioned that commentators actually call Zechariah one of the most difficult books of the Bible to interpret, to understand. Do you remember me mentioning that? It was interesting because I found, they said, and chapter 11 is probably the hardest part of the book. I'm like, oh, great. It's not too bad. I think when we understand in light of the context of what's going on, we're going to see that this represents the rejection of Christ because of how it ends. It's incredible. If you know, if you've read Zechariah before, you know this prophesies with incredible detail the betrayal of Judas, or the betrayal of Christ, I should say, by Judas. And so we know that this is speaking about the rejection of Christ at his first coming. That's what's going on here. So God instructs Zechariah, verse 4. He says this, Thus said the Lord my God, Become shepherd, so this is a, he's representing Jesus now, of the flock. Now the flock is a representation of Israel, doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slaughter them, and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. And now we know that that during the the time of Christ, the religious and and the political leaders, Israel's shepherds, right, of that day, they, they sold out the flock. 
They did. They sold out the flock. Many of them became very wealthy and very powerful by, by cutting deals with the Romans. We could go on in verse 6 now. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king. It's important. Remember that phrase. And they shall crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. Deliver them, he says, into the hand of their king. Well, how many of you would say, well, wait a minute, wasn't God their king? Well, look at what John 19, verses 14 and 15 says. This is what we read. It says, here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. What's their response? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Isn't that interesting? What did Zechariah say in verse 6 of chapter 11? He says, God will, will cause them to, be, to fall into the hand of their king. See, the reality is, is they chose Caesar over Jesus. And they would have to learn the hard way what it is to serve any king but Jesus, right? What does any king but Jesus do? Any king but Jesus destroys and enslaves, uses you. You think of the, the king of power, the king of lust the king of drugs, whatever it would be, the king of this world. No king, you need to know this, no king loves you as much as King Jesus loves you. And all other kings will bring destruction. That's what we saw with Rome in 70 AD. But here's the thing with Jesus. He never forces us to bow the knee to him as king, does he? He doesn't force us to do that. He lets us choose our king. Well, next, Zechariah acts out basically this whole shepherd thing what God told him to do. He now plays basically shepherd dress up. Verse 7. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs. One I named Favor, the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. Now a shepherd would often use two staffs. It's not uncommon for a shepherd to have two staffs. We know this. Um, in fact, Psalm 23, if you've read Psalm 23, what does David say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So they would often have these two different items. A shepherd would carry these two different utensils. One was a staff and one was a rod. A rod would be used basically to beat off predators of the sheep. So wolves and lions and bears, that was what the rod was used for, to beat off anything that would be coming to harm the sheep. The staff is what we generally traditionally think of as a shepherd's staff, kind of like a question mark, right? With the crook in the top. And that hook would be used to, to lead the sheep, to protect them. If a sheep got stuck maybe on a ledge somewhere, they could use that to kind of lift the sheep to, to safety. Well, so God says, take two staffs. But he wants them, he says, I want you to name these two staffs specific things. One favor and one union. And we're going to see why he does this in a, in a moment, in a few verses. Verse 8, in one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them and they also detested me. Now, this is one of those areas where scholars and commentators are like, we have no idea what's going on here. Who are these three shepherds? Were these three shepherds people that were like right there with, in Zechariah's day that were detested Zechariah and kind of they were like battling together? We don't know what was going on. There's actually, and commentators mention this, there's about 40 different ideas of who these three shepherds could be, who they represent. Probably the two best ideas, I think, um, one is that it could be the three leadership groups of Israel at the time of Christ. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. Those were kind of the three leadership groups, and we know that they didn't really appreciate Jesus, did they? 
right? There was a bit of detestation, as the verse talked about there. They became impatient, and then they detested him. Probably the best explanation is, is really probably the oldest and the most common idea, and it's that these three shepherds represent the three offices in Israel of prophet, priest, and king. And God says, in one month I destroyed the three shepherds. In one month I'm going to be done with these offices of Israel, prophet, priest, and king. I think this is the best explanation. In fact, history tells us that this actually happened in July of 70 AD when Rome came in and conquered Jerusalem. What happened? Well, the daily sacrifices in the temple ceased when it was destroyed. And what happened to the Levitical priesthood? It was disbanded, right? The Levitical priesthood, done. You think about the Old Covenant or the Old Testament form of prophets. They were told they hid, never to be heard from again. And then any Jewish princes, anybody that was of any royalty that was still remaining in Jerusalem, what happened to them? They were slaughtered. They were killed. In fact, along with about a million other Jews that were killed at the destruction of Jerusalem. You see, when Jerusalem fell to Rome in one month, think about this, institutions that were thousands of years old since the time of Moses no longer existed. And so many think that that's these three shepherds that that probably are being referred to here, prophet, priest, and king. But the key idea, really, I think, with this passage and what's going on here is the idea that we need to understand that rejection of Christ always has consequences. Look at verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 11. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. You see, Israel would reject Christ as their shepherd, and they would have to face the consequences. As this verse speaks about here, basically the good shepherd's hand of healing would be withdrawn. It says here, what is to die, let it die, right? The hand of protection would also be withdrawn. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. Even those that would be left, did you notice what the last part of the phrase says, who are left devour the flesh of one another. This literally happened, (laughs) History tells us this, that when when Rome laid siege to Jerusalem, you know what they did is they cut off the supply supply lines to the city. They laid siege and they they, they cut off any supplies and there's nothing that could get in and nothing that could get out. It got so bad that uh, Josephus, who was the the, the Jewish historian at the time of Christ, he actually writes that things got, that the the, the situation was so desperate in Jerusalem that people even, some people even resorted to cannibalism to survive. This literally happened. But this is really the story of what happens when we continue to reject Christ. I mean, the Bible tells us that he is patient with us. He wants none to perish. But if we continue to just say, no, thanks, Jesus, no, no, you know what? He'll let you choose your king. He will let you live your life without his intervention. That's what Romans chapter 1 really speaks about. He will give you over to the desires of your heart. You really want it? He says, fine, I'll give it to you. I'll let you have it. If we insist on having our own way, he might just let us get it. And it's oftentimes that, that it's in those moments that we then find out the very thing that we were demanding was not really what we wanted. But they said, we want no king but Caesar. And you know what God said? Fine. Caesar it is. You will see how Caesar leads you as king. And he would destroy them. He would destroy Jerusalem. Verse 10 now says this, And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. Other translations, if you have other translations open, do any of you have any other translations open right now? What does it say? Revoking, but with who? The peoples? 
the nations. Some of you probably, it says nations. Some of, you, some of your texts, it might actually say Gentiles even. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Now, this is important. God wasn't saying here he was breaking his favor or covenant with the Jews. That's not what he was saying, but with the nations or with the Gentiles. You see, originally, what was the covenant that he had made with the nations? He says, I will bless those who bless you, right? Talking about those, bless those that bless Israel, and I will curse those who curse Israel. You can see God's hand of protection was on them divinely throughout their history. But here, he would say, I'm going to give Rome a free pass. They're welcome. They're welcome to just come in and to bring their destruction down because of the rejection of Christ, to bring their judgment. Well, next in verse 12, we see Zechariah's job is done as the good shepherd, so he wants his pay. Verse 12, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Now remember, remember, Zechariah is representing who as the, the shepherd here? Jesus. He's representing Jesus as the good shepherd here. And, and, and so really what, we, we know this, obviously we have a little bit of a tip here because we know that in the Gospel of Matthew he tells us precisely this is just what was prophesied about Judas. So we know this is clearly prophesied ahead of time. But this is representing Jesus in the eyes of the nation. And how, do, how does this portray, what do they say? What do they value Jesus as? How would they value, what would the value that they would put on Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. This was a total insult. A total insult. 30 pieces of silver. I mean, it wasn't, you know, just like pennies. It was more than pennies. But what 30 pieces of silver was, Exodus 21 actually tells us what 30 pieces of silver represented. It was the value of a slave. Would you think, okay, well, Jesus came, you know, to be the servant of all. But do you know what? It wasn't just the value of a slave. It was the value of a slave that had been gored by an ox. That was no more useful. Useless. A damaged slave is what they value him. It was the lowest human value you could put on a person. And that is the price that that they put on Jesus. And so what does God tell Zechariah to do with this? Verse 13. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. And then you notice it says in your text probably the lordly or princely, depending on your translation. The lordly or the princely price at which I was priced by them. It's really sarcastic is what he's saying. If you think about it, the lordly or princely price, it's the price of a damaged slave. (laughs) And he's saying the lordly price that they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. This whole scene obviously is prophetically spoken as to what would happen to Jesus. Matthew chapter 27, you can read it. After Judas, of course, betrayed Jesus for how much? How much did Judas betray Jesus for? 30 pieces of silver. He had incredible regret and remorse. And what did he do with the money that he had received, the 30 pieces of silver? He took it and did what? He threw it, well, he didn't throw it to the potter, he threw it to the temple. He threw it into the temple. And what happened? The priests then take the money and they're like, well, we can't put it into the temple treasury. Why could they not keep the money? money. It was blood money. Why did they know it was blood money? Because they were the ones that paid it. They said, this is the value of Jesus. We'll give you this much for his blood. And then what did the priests do? This This is interesting. They bought a specific field. What was that field? The potter's field. 
They bought the potter's field. Judas went out and hung himself, and they buy this potter's field as a burial place for foreigners, thus fulfilling this prophecy from Zechariah. What is interesting is what the potter's field was used for. A potter's field was completely useless land. You know, a potter's field was where a potter would, would throw the broken, damaged, rejected pottery. It was a field that was useless because you couldn't use the soil for anything good anymore. You couldn't plant anything. There were so many broken pots and uh, clay pots and vessels and all kinds of things. Damaged, rejected pottery filled the soil. Yet here's the thing. What did the blood of Christ purchase? A resting place for broken, damaged, rejected things. Hello. That's me. That's you. That's all of us. Broken, damaged, rejected. His blood paid for all of us that had been maybe thrown out by the world. Jesus' blood purchases people like you and me with nicks and scrapes and dents and breaks, rejects, flaws. I mean, if I were Jesus, I'd be like, I want my, my money to go to purchase some beachfront property somewhere. Instead, God would divinely decree that it would be used to purchase you and me by his blood. Isn't that a great picture? Then with the rejection of Christ, we really see its end result in verse 14. Then I broke my second staff union. Now, of course, the first, first staff was what? Was favor. And that was God saying, I'm breaking my favor, my covenant with the nations. Now he says, I'm going to break my second staff, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. After the destruction of Jerusalem, Israel, of course, was scattered. Their unity destroyed. Scattered all over the world right? Unity broken. And all of this because of the rejection of Jesus, the good shepherd, which is really a warning to us today. You know, the rejection of Christ always has consequences. We see here in this first part that what did it do? It opened the doors to destruction. That's what it does. It opens the doors to destruction in our lives. But not just destruction, also when we deny the truth and we reject God's offer of Jesus Christ, it not only opens the door to destruction, but it also opens the door to deception. See, we're going to see now how it leads to Israel's acceptance of the false shepherd. You reject the good, you accept the false. That's just how it works. You refuse the truth, you'll start believing lies. That's just how it is. So in this this play that Zechariah kind of is having here, we see that after the rejection of the good shepherd, it opens the door for acceptance of the foolish shepherd. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. So, so somehow, in some way, in Zechariah's kind of play, he changes costumes now, essentially. It's time to play the foolish shepherd in this role. And it's been said before, once you reject the truth, there's no end to the foolishness you'll believe. You, know, you think about it. Despite Jesus' messianic credentials, think about his pedigree. Did Jesus have a good pedigree? Yeah, he did. <laughs> He's the son of God. You can't get a better pedigree than that. Right? So his pedigree, despite... Despite the miracles, all the credentials that he had, the miracles. John says that he did so many things, there's not even room in the world to write it all down. All the miracles that he did. His pedigree, his miracles. You, you think about all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. The, 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 the probability that one person could fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament in just one person, of where he'd be born, when he'd be born, how he would be crucified, all these different things. It's absolutely impossible absolutely impossible. Despite these credentials, even his resurrection, 
the Jews still did not accept him as, his, as their Messiah. In fact, they still do not accept Jesus as their Messiah. Very few Jews today, you can, will find, are Messianic, what we call Messianic Jews, that believe Jesus is the Messiah. You know, it opened the door. What it did is their rejection of Jesus, uh, we know this because it also speaks in Hebrews about a veil being put over their eyes at this day, right, because of their rejection. But, but it opened them up to other false messiahs. That's what it did to foolish shepherds. In 132 AD, you maybe heard of a, of a man named Simon Bar Kokhba. Um, I think it was called the, the, the Wars of the Jews. I forget what they referred to it. But he was a, a, a Jewish man. And so, so 70 AD is the, um, the destruction of the temple. There are, there are still Jews that, of course, remained in the area as they could. They revolted against Rome in 132 AD under this man who they thought was the Messiah. They thought he was the Messiah. He led them into this revolt, and they were slaughtered pretty bad. You know what? There's been all kinds of people through the history that have duped them into believing that they're the, that they're the Messiah. Even as recent as 1994, there was a man named, and I'll say his name totally wrong, but Menachem Schneerson. This was a man. I have a picture of his. This is his funeral, and he's in that casket there. Look at all the Jews around them. They have to have police. Why? Because they believed rabbis were saying this is the Messiah. And they thought it was the Messiah. So when he died, they're like, what's going on? He's supposed to free us from our oppression and everything. They still, all the way through history, they continued, continued, continued. Why? Because they rejected the good, true shepherd. They now accept any false shepherd. But the worst one they're going to fall for is still yet to come. Many believe that this passage speaks of somebody in particular, and you guys know who I'm talking about, I'm sure. Not the good shepherd, but the anti-shepherd, also known as the antichrist. This is how verse 16 describes him. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. This dude is going to be bad. This is not a good shepherd. I mean, if this guy's your shepherd, how do you sleep at night? One eye open at all times. Is that guy coming for me, right? This is not a good shepherd going to rip him apart. He's truly the opposite of the good shepherd, is he not? You can see it. He's the the anti-shepherd, you would say, right? Fire, yeah, you you want to fire him, but they won't. Well, they will eventually, but literally, yes. Here's the reality. Look at the description. We're told here that he, he doesn't care for those being destroyed. You can tell, you know, we know that because he's not the good shepherd, the good shepherd instead, Jesus, we know that he does care for those being destroyed, doesn't he? Right? You know, and maybe you're here this morning. Maybe life has been destroying you. You need to know that Jesus cares. He wants to protect you. He wants to care for you. He wants to watch over you as your shepherd. We also notice in this passage that the foolish or the anti-shepherd doesn't seek the young, it says. You know, Jesus always had time for the little children, didn't he? Right? Always. He still does today. In fact, how are we supposed to come to Christ? As a child. Right? As a child. The foolish or anti-shepherd, it says here that he doesn't heal the maimed or the broken. Well, Jesus, of course, looks for the maimed and the broken. He wants to heal broken hearts and lives and mend them and put them back together. In fact, there's a description of him, I think it's in Matthew, where it talks about, that. it says that, you know, a bruised reed and a smoldering wick, he won't, he won't break or snuff out. A bruised reed, a bruised reed was good for nothing. But instead, he'll come along and he won't break it and finish it. Ah, oh, you you're broken. You're no good to me. No, he says he won't break that bruised reed. He'll take it and he'll, he'll be, as I've heard it described before, he'll be like a splint. 
for the bruised reed. And for that smoldering wick that your life's just barely hanging on, you're about to fizzle out. Instead, he'll be like a flint, I've heard it said. And he'll bring life again, fire back into your soul. This is who Jesus is. He looks for the broken heart. The foolish, the anti-shepherd, it, it says he doesn't nourish the healthy, described that way. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus, the good shepherd, is in fact the bread of life. The foolish or anti-shepherd devours the, uh, the sheep. He tears them apart. Instead, Jesus gives his life for the sheep, doesn't he? He lays his life down for the sheep that they might live. Well, what a contrast you see between the good shepherd and the foolish shepherd. You know, Jesus warned, though, of these consequences for rejecting him. John 5, 43 says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, speaking many believe here of the Antichrist, you will accept him. You, you, listen, you reject the truth. What else do you have to believe but lies? And I've shared this with you before, but even the word believe, just because you believe something doesn't mean it's true. You can believe with all your heart, but it still doesn't mean it's true. Look at, how do you spell the word believe? I don't know. I don't think you guys know how to spell. <laughs> you spell the word believe this way. B-E, then what comes next? L-I-E. Oh, do you notice that? What's right in the middle of the word believe? Lie. And then V-E. Just because you believe something doesn't mean that it's true. And they will believe wholeheartedly, accept wholeheartedly. Here's the thing. You reject the truth. There's not an in-between. Sometimes we think that, well, it's mostly true, that's a description of Satanism. Honestly, that's what he does. He takes the truth and he twists it just a little bit. That's how Satan works. It's mostly true. Mostly true doesn't work. But if you reject the truth, that, 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 there's no in between. It's either a lie or the truth. And the Bible tells us that the Jews will accept this Antichrist as their Messiah. Hook, line, and sinker. They'll go all in. The Bible talks about there being three and a half years of peace. And then after three and a half years, this, this foolish shepherd, the Antichrist, will turn on the Jews. They'll realize their mistake, but not before what this passage speaks about, the destruction that will come upon them, the damage that will come upon them, as verse 16 says. But don't forget, Israel still, he didn't break his covenant with his people. Let me be clear about that. Israel, God has not broken his covenant with Israel. There are so many passages in the Bible that speak about that he will never do that. Just as sure as the sun continues to rise, he says, I'll never break my covenant with Israel. And so Israel is still God's people. And so God is going to pronounce a woe upon this foolish shepherd. Look at verse 17. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts, des deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Some commentators think that perhaps this refers to Revelation 13, where it speaks about the, the Antichrist receiving this, this fatal wound, being mortally wounded, but then miraculously recovering and really causing the whole world to cause, uh, to cause the whole world to then begin to worship him as God after, uh, you know, in an even greater measure. Other commentators look at this verse a little more symbolically and they, they say, well, probably it means more so that during the tribulation period that, that um, the Antichrist will lose power, the sword striking the arm, a symbol of power, right? And he'll also lose knowledge or intelligence, right? Uh, the, the, uh, the blinding of the right eye, Still others see the sword striking his arm and his eye a little more literally, just simply as God's judgment. This is God's judgment upon him that for the arm that should have protected the sheep will now be withered, 
And the eye that should have watched over the sheep instead will be blinded. So either way, whatever it is, it, God's basically saying this. Although he appoints the, the foolish shepherd and sets him up in light of Israel's rejection of the good shepherd, God, it doesn't mean that God approves of this worthless shepherd. He appoints him, but he doesn't approve of him. And God will judge the worthless shepherd who injures his flock. He still will do that. Here's the thing. This morning as we close, as we transition to communion in just a few moments, moments here, you know, there were consequences to rejecting Christ then at his first coming. There are still consequences today to rejecting Christ. And maybe some of you are here this morning or maybe you're joining us online and you are living a life of Christ rejection and you are facing the consequences. You've faced it maybe already in your life. Maybe you have changed and turned and you've now discovered what a life aside from a Christ-rejecting life looks like, the blessings that come with it. And I want you to know this morning that you can change the great mistake of rejecting Jesus. Now, you have the opportunity today. You can let Jesus be the good shepherd of your life, the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. You can let him lead you, regardless of the mistakes that you have made. He offers you a second chance. He offers you a 2,000th chance. He never stops offering. So long as you're alive on this earth, his mercy and his grace is here for you. I want to say this as well, though. Maybe, maybe you're rejecting Jesus in different ways, the good shepherd in a different way. Maybe it's like, yeah, I've put my faith in Jesus. I, I, I'm walking with him. But maybe the good shepherd has been trying to lead you in different paths, and you've been ignoring his voice. Maybe, maybe you instead have been leading yourself or letting someone else lead you, but you still say, well, but I'm still a follower of Jesus. Ultimately, you're rejecting him in that. Stop ignoring him. Start listening once again. I want you to know that that is what communion represents. The price that he paid, the blood that was shed for you and for me, damaged and broken, even in our mistakes as, as allowing him to lead us, he still welcomes us again when we make mistakes. He came for the broken. He came for the rejected, just like you and just like me. And so this morning, I would encourage you, listen to his voice again as we prepare to receive communion. You need to know this. You are worth his blood. And he loves you. He loves you. Even in your broken state, he lays down his life for you as the good shepherd. And his death and resurrection has made a way for you to come back. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I'm also going to invite uh, Ron and Bev are going to serve our communion this morning. And I want us just to close by taking, just taking some time this morning just to allow him to speak. Where have I maybe been rejecting the good shepherd in my life? Where has he been speaking perhaps, calling and offering to lead and I've been ignoring or I've been resisting in some way? As we just allow God to speak and to prepare our hearts, before we receive communion, can we just pray and just allow him to just to speak this morning in that way? Maybe you've never accepted him as your shepherd. I want to give you that chance this morning to do that. I want to give you the opportunity to put your faith in Jesus, the good shepherd, this morning. So why don't we close our eyes as we just allow him to prepare our hearts this morning. Father, we come before you and we thank you that, Lord, you desire to lead and to guide into good places. In fact, you tell us in Psalm 23 that if we allow you to be our good shepherd, we won't even be in want. We'll need nothing. You'll provide what we need. 
You'll lead us. You'll guide us. You'll protect us. You'll watch over us. You'll remove even fear from our lives. And I pray right now, Jesus, for anybody joining us online or here this morning in-house that has not put their faith and their trust in you, that God is not allowing you, perhaps, to be their good shepherd today. I ask, Father, that you would open their eyes again to see the goodness of God, to see once again the price that you paid for each and every one of us, that it's not about how good we are, it's about how great and amazing you are. In fact, we make mistakes. We continue to make mistakes and you welcome us back again and again. You forgive us and you instead give mercy. You don't give us what we deserve. That's what mercy is. Instead, you give us grace. Grace, which is getting what we don't deserve. Lord, I just pray if there's anybody this morning that does not know you as the good shepherd of their life, that today would be the day they would put their faith and their hope and their trust in you, Jesus. Lord, for those of us that have put our faith in you, that have allowed you to lead us, I ask, Lord, that you would speak to us if there's areas in our lives right now that we are not allowing you to shepherd, that maybe we've closed the door to and we've said, Lord, you can lead these other areas, but this area, that's off limits. May you speak to us, Lord. Show us, God, if we've been rejecting you in any way, rejecting your voice and the leading of the shepherd. Speak now, I pray, just in these moments. Show those things of our heart that need to be given over again to you. And Lord, if there's anybody here right now that that it has not placed their faith or their trust in you, I want to give that opportunity. That you be speaking to them right now, not because of my words, but because of your love, rather. Your love on display for them, that they would turn their lives over to you. And so I want to ask, just, just as we're just allowing the Lord to speak to us, if there's anybody in this place this morning that would say that, that Peter, I want to put my faith in the good shepherd. I want to give my life over to him. Not because of my good works, because they're no good, but because of his perfection sacrificed for me on the cross in my place. Is there anybody here, if you just want to slip up your hand, I would love to just pray for you in closing as we transition to communion. Is there anybody this morning that would say that? If you're online and you want to do the same and put your faith in Jesus today, can you send us an email? Uh, just peter at duncanchurch.com. I would love to talk to you about next steps of walking with Jesus. And so, Father, I thank you, Lord. I believe that all of us in this room have a relationship with you. What a beautiful thing. What a, a beautiful thing to know that we can trust you, that you will lead us in the best, best paths, the best places. You'll protect us. You will guide us. You will lead us. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.